0: The crushing weight of the tyrant's passage I left nothing unmarked You get split in fucking half But I call him a hologram wrath But I am the center
1: inside the placenta of math You clash with cyanide gas You are now listening to episode 33 Of the Death to Tyrants podcast Welcome I am your host and humble narrator as always Buck Johnson Thank you guys for tuning back in. If you're a new, welcome. I hope you like what you hear. I hope you like what uh, I will bring to you today. What a guest I have. His name is Stefan Kinsella. If you are well-versed in the libertarian world, you already know who he is. If not, I'm going to give you his long official introduction here in a second, but... Uh, just from my own perspective, he has been an amazing guest on many of the podcasts I listen to, and I've listened to him speak uh, and do different lectures that you can find online, and it's always so interesting. He gets very deep into the theory of where rights come from, what, what human rights, what property rights are, how it's viewed uh, through libertarianism. And then he gets into intellectual property and copyrights and patents and all kinds of stuff like that, argumentation ethics. So if any of that just went right over your head, just stay tuned because he's going to break a lot of that down. The term rights is so overly used uh, in the political discussions today and many times used incorrectly. So we kind of go over what rights actually are and what that means to have human rights, property rights, and so on. And he gets deep into that and it's very, very informative. He's very good at what he does. His official introduction is this. Stefan Kinsella is a patent attorney and libertarian writer in Houston. He was formerly a partner with Dwayne Morris and general counsel for Applied Optoelectronics Incorporated. He is the founder of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom and founding and executive editor of Libertarian Papers. A former adjunct professor at South Texas College of Law, he has published numerous articles and books on intellectual property law, international law, and the application of libertarian principles to legal topics, including International Investment, Political Risk, Dispute Resolution, A Practitioner's Guide, Louisiana Civil Law Dictionary, Against Intellectual Property, and the forthcoming Law in a Libertarian World, Legal Foundations of a Free Society. Kinsella received a Master of Laws in International Business Law from King's College, London, a Doctor of Jurisprudence from the Paul M. Hebert Law Center at LSU, and a Bachelor's of Science in Electrical Engineering as well as a Master's of Science in Electrical Engineering from LSU. How is that for an introduction? He's prob- that's the lengthiest introduction any of my guests have had, and uh, he in fact deserves it because he's quite the thinker. So here we go. All right, guys, my guest today on Death to Tyrants is Stefan Kinsella. Uh, he is extremely well-versed in subjects that are fascinating to me, uh, like libertarianism, uh, the theory behind it, intellectual property, argumentation ethics, and so much more. And he's been a great guest on some of my personal favorite podcasts, and now I'm stoked to have him here on Death to Tyrants. Stefan, welcome to the show, and thank you for being here.
0: Hey, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, But... Just keep in mind, I'm a lawyer and engineer, so don't expect too much.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> um, well, first, just as for those of the people listening that don't know you, can you kind of talk about what you do and how you came to libertarianism?
0: Sure. Uh, I can give it pretty briefly. I'm uh, from Louisiana. I went to Louisiana, LSU. Um, I was an engineer and then a lawyer and uh, became interested in uh, you know, Ayn Rand and objectivism and free market economics and libertarianism in high school and college and all that while being a lawyer. So I'm a patent attorney now. That's what I do for a living. I live in Houston, and uh, I've been interested in libertarian and Austrian economics and that kind of theory for you know, a good 25, 30 years, and I started writing and speaking about this about 25, 35 years ago, and I blended it with some of my legal knowledge too, so I've sort of had uh, you know, my foot in both worlds, the legal world and the libertarian world. Um, I, you know, I started out as a kind of Ayn Rand, free market, minarchist type,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and radically, but be- uh, quickly became you know, a Rothbardian anarchist and an Austrian economist devotee. <laughs> and that's what that's what I still am. And then I, you know, I started practicing and specializing in patent and intellectual property law as a young lawyer in 1993 or so. And around the same time I started devoting some of my libertarian attention to that issue because the questions are just never ending on that issue. Mm-hmm. But and everyone, you know, a lot of people think of me as Mr. IP because that's what I talk about a lot and I know more about it than most people. Because the legal issue is so difficult that most people mangle the issue even if they're you know, well-intentioned, um, you know, even Rothbard messed it up a little bit. Ayn Rand messed it up big time, uh-huh. which, is what, which is what led me to try to search for the right way to look at it, which I've done. But my main interest always was rights theory and epistemology and other aspects of legal theory and uh, libertarian legal theory. Um, I just had to sort of get the, the IP stuff out of the way just to clear the underbrush, so to speak, um, so I could speak about other things. And I found out that uh, clearing this issue up in your mind does enable you to – it requires you to clear up a lot of property concepts and rights concepts, mm-hmm. which I think have just contributed to my understanding of you know contract theory and rights theory and property theory and – You know, just political theory in general. Uh, So, I'm basically just a lawyer who has a strong interest in libertarian theory, especially intellectual property and property theory.
1: I wanted to actually talk some, that kind of leads me into my first uh, question here. I wanted to talk some about how we as libertarians view rights, and because it's a little bit different, I think, than a lot of others. And uh, Rothbard put it well. To me, I think uh, when he said that human rights uh, are property rights and my pitch to non-libertarians is always I start by asking, who do you believe owns you? And uh, so can you get into some of that and uh, your thoughts and and philosophy there?
0: Yeah, this is a really sort of subtle and difficult issue. But if you're, you know, if you're well-meaning and you're not trying to get people in gotcha comments and all that. I think you can think about this kind of coherently, and I won't say that we have like a logical, objectivist type, you know, nettle-clad framework mapped out that's definitive forever. But I think our way of looking at it is superior to any other approach that I know of, and it's it's been uh, growing. Um, so I would say first this um, rights. I think Rothbard was 100 percent correct, and it was an essential insight, one of his key insights, I think, that all rights are property rights. Right. That still doesn't answer the question of what a right in general is, but I think we can figure that out by approaching it from sort of a, a legal positivistic view, which would be the way most people think about what law is. So we have all these concepts that we use all the time as libertarians and as just regular citizens of a liberal sort of Western democracy You know, we have rights, property, property rights, um, ownership, justice, good, bad, illegitimate, legitimate, valid, invalid. We use all these quasi or completely normative concepts, not always interchangeably, but we use them in a mixed up fashion. And so the way I look at it is that, um, to be honest, I look at it more and more from the from the praxeological framework which is the the view of, of Ludwig von Mises, the Austrian economist
1: right. um,
0: his framework of analyzing human action t- for economic purposes right? Um, and I use this in intellectual property theorizing and also in just thinking about how we analyze these things either from a, a Randian point of view a natural rights point of view a consequentialist point of view um, Mises pointed out that Humans act, and what that means is that we employ means to achieve ends in the future. And this sounds simple and trivial, but it's actually extremely packed with some of the most profound ways of looking at human, um, the human experience, which is that we act. And there's two crucial components of this idea of action. That is that we're sentient beings, we're aware of what's going on, we're, we're conscious, we're aware of ourselves and the environment and the universe. We're aware of the passage of time, we're aware that things are in flux, they change. We're aware that the, the future is uncertain. We're aware that we have values and we have things that we want and we prefer and we desire. And we're, we become aware that things are happening to us and the passage of time is is happening. And, and Things are going to happen in the future unless we intervene. So that's to me the key issue. Human action is intervention. It is doing something that affects the flow of time, that affects what would happen in the future otherwise. Mm-hmm. So everything we do is aimed at changing the state of affairs in the future from what we imagine it would otherwise be. And so, obviously, it involves knowledge. Like we have to have knowledge of where we are and what might come. And it involves the 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 actual human action, the implementation of things that can affect the flow of things. That's that's the use, the employment of, of means of action. So every human action employs what we call scarce means. That that is just things that can affect what's going to happen. And it also involves knowledge, because you can't act if you're if you're ignorant or a vegetable or you don't have an active mind. Sure. So so the key ingredients of every action would be knowledge and uh, availability of means. And if you imagine the Crusoe case, like Rothbard and, sure. and, and, uh, and others paint, like a guy isolated from society, he has to deal with both these things. He has to he has to understand the world around him to some degree. That's knowledge, and he has to have the availability of what we call means which are scarce resources or physical means of action, including his body. And so he has to employ these things. And so there's no other people around. There's no laws. There's no society. So there's no such thing as rights because that's a social concept. But he does have what we could call possession or control over these resources. And when we enter into society with other people – there's many benefits of living in society, right? There's the ability to trade, to, to live with other people, to have communication, to learn from each other, um, but the danger is that there are multiple competing actors who now might want to have the same means that we would have, which are scarce means,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so there could be conflict. So you have this thing called conflict emerge when there are more than one pe- person, and when conflict is a possibility it diminishes your ability to be able to control the resources you need in any human action. And so over time, because people have empathy and they have social impulses and they prefer to live with each other and they prefer to live with people that are cooperative rather than people that are in violent conflict with each other all the time, uh, uh, property rights emerge as a sort of practical solution to the problem of conflict. Now, getting, I'm getting – I'm saying all this because you asked what rights are. And so right is basically, as Rothbard says, a property right. The reason it has to be a property right is because the only way that there could be conflict uh, – the only reason that there's conflict is because of the nature of man and the world that, there, that we live in a world of scarce, scarce resources. Right. That, that means that there's a possibility of conflict. If there was no conflict, if there was infinite, infinite abundance, there would be no possibility of any clashing or conflict at all. and the whole idea of rights or property rights or conflict would just vanish. It just wouldn't have any meaning. But because there's conflict, people that prefer cooperation over violence tend to band together and adopt these social rules that they recognize, which is basically… It's basically the, the right – the ability to possess or control a resource, which I mentioned earlier, is essential to action. It's that ability extended into the normative realm, and the normative – norm just means rules. So it just means that we, we adopt rules that are designed to allow people to use these resources, which we need to use anyway, but it's designed to allocate the rules to the best person who has a claim to it. Because you need to have the the ability to use the resources, and we would prefer to do it without violent conflict and in a peaceful, cooperative manner. So to my mind – and of course we can get into the the details of this, the way it emerged uh, historically and the the economic reasons for why certain types of rules make sense and others don't – But basically property rights are what emerge from this societal intermingling of people given the desire of people to be able to use resources in a productive and cooperative way. So property rights assign or allocate a particular owner to any particular resource that could have a a conflict or a contest over it um, based upon certain principles that could be and that tend to be accepted as fair and just by all the parties affected. So that's a, a condensed and maybe too overpacked, but that's the short answer of what rights are. Rights are the social rules that ethically protect the ability to use scarce resources that must be used for successful human action.
1: Do you think? Uh, how did he? What did he mean exactly, though, with human rights are property rights? Is that self-ownership, as in, i.e., you own yourself, that's the property we're discussing uh, in that particular example?
0: I think so. And, of course, so, you know, I.V. I, Rothbard is the, the giant on libertarian sort of theory. But
1: mm-hmm.
0: he was, stand, you know, everyone operates with a certain net, but without a net to a certain degree. I mean, he stood on the shoulders of, of Mises, and even Ayn Rand to a certain degree. She stood on the shoulders of others, Um, and he he did an amazing job cobbling his stuff together. Uh, I think it can still be refined and expanded. That's why I think intellectual property and other things. Um, I think at least implicit in his views and explicit in so many others uh, was his view of self-ownership. So the way I look at it now, which I view as a distillation of sort of the best of 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 I would just go back in time. Hoppe, who built upon Rothbard, mm-hmm. who built upon uh, the Austrians like Mises and, and and others, and also even Ayn Rand and other classical liberal thinkers, radical and radical anarchists before them, who didn't have quite a modern sophisticated understanding of, of this stuff. Um, so the way I would distill it now is this. All rights and if you think about a right, it's a right is – we call it enforceable, and the word force is in that word, force, mm-hmm. because the idea is that ultimately it's about a clash between people. And ultimately, if there's, uh, if there's an infringement of your so-called rights, someone has the, the right to use force to defend that so-called right. So it's all bound up in this idea of, of force, which is really bound up with the idea of clashing, Uh, which is only possible because we live in a world of scarce resources. So really it's all about a dispute about any particular scarce resource. And again a scarce resource is is something that we need to achieve an end in our world but that that can only be used by one person at a time. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not like information. This is one reason I'm totally opposed to intellectual property laws is because it tries to give a property right in something that is not a scarce resource that people can't really have a conflict over because any number of people can use the same information at the same time. Uh, anyone can make, use the same recipe at the same time. Any number of people can make cars, car. They can make fire. Sure. They're all using the same information. Um, what real disputes are always about is things people violently, physically can clash over, which is physical things basically in the world. And that, of course, includes people's bodies. So when you ask uh, who owns you, I would put it the other way around. I would say that you own your body. So when people say self ownership, mm-hmm. I think what, what they mean is they mean that uh, this human being's body obviously, multiple people sometimes want to control it or have the right to use it as they see fit. You know, a rapist wants to use the woman's body for sex, and mm-hmm. she doesn't want to. Uh, A slave owner wants to use the slave body for a certain purpose. right? Um, The the U.S. government wants to use my body to put it in jail if I don't pay taxes or if I don't sign up for a conscription or whatever. Mm -hmm. So there's always a dispute over a a particular body, and… There is a dispute. There's just no doubt about that, and anyone who disputes that would call it <laughs> myself contradictions self-contradiction because it would be easy to end the debate by just shooting them. I mean not that you want to, but
1: right.
0: if they don't claim a right in their body, then they're consenting to – or they're, they're, they're not objecting to their body being used against their will, but of course everyone does. So everyone claims an interest in their body or someone else's body that they want to dominate, so then the question legally becomes – if this becomes a real dispute – Okay, well, then who is the owner of that human body? Mm -hmm. And the libertarian answer is you are. Now, you is sort of a legal personality idea, or you can even say it's the body. I I mean even that logically, that gives some people a case of the vapors when you say your body owns your body. Isn't there a circularity? (laughs) It's like, no, there's, there's not a circularity. There's nothing that bothers me. Someone has to own my body. I'd rather it be me than someone else. That's because I'm a libertarian and I oppose slavery. I don't really care whether you metaphysically call me as some kind of global philosophical cluster, the the legal personality, the spirit, the soul, or just the body. It doesn't really matter for legal purposes. Um, The the question is – the point is just to answer the question in a dispute. Who gets to control this body? Is it that person themselves or is it some other person? Right. And so the answer is always really a question between slavery or self-ownership. So self-ownership to me is just a shorthand term that means when there's a a dispute over who should have the right to control, the legally recognized right to control that human body, that scarce resource, who should be the, the owner or the property owner? And the, the default answer is the person. Now, you can imagine cases where that's not the answer, where someone commits a crime and they're, they're sentenced to punishment. For that limited purpose, then they've transferred their rights in their body to to their victim, in a, in a sense, right, or the yeah. victim's heirs. Uh, but the default answer is everyone's their own owner. And uh, by analogy, I would say that the essence of the libertarian sort of creed is usually summed up. … or used to be summed up by libertarians using the expression NAP, non-aggression principle. Sure. I think even that is a shorthand for what we really believe, which is basically a summary of our method of allocating property rights in both human bodies and in other types of script resources, which is all the other things in the world other than our bodies. Um, and the reason I think we use that shorthand is because the root of… Owning your life, you could say metaphorically, the root of having property rights in all these things is first you have to own your life, as people say, which means you own your body. So you're owning your bodies, as Hans Hermann Hoppe in his book says, owning yourself or owning your body is a prototype for the ownership of other scarce resources, which you could say is the source of that. Right. Right. And so. Uh, so the, the prototypical ownership would be ownership of your body, which is reflected in this idea of non-aggression because aggression just means like physically physically controlling or hitting or invading someone else's body without their consent or their permission. So if you say you're against aggression, it's equivalent to saying you're, you're in favor of self-ownership or body ownership. So those two expressions are equivalent. So we tend to use non-aggression as a synonym or a shorthand to describe the idea that we're against slavery basically. Sure. But then we extend this notion of dominion over our bodies to to disputes about other things in the world. So if there's a car or a chair or a tree or a tract of land or a cow, and there's a dispute over who owns that…  … Then we settle that dispute also with certain principles. And again, the libertarians have a certain rule, which is basically whoever had it first, sure. or whoever whoever gave it to someone by consent or by contract. Um, but the point is, we have an answer to that question. And because, in the case of ownership of our bodies, any infraction of that we call is is equivalent to aggression. Then we sort of think analogously that when someone uses our other property without our permission, that's also aggression. So we include it under the concept non-aggression principle. Although I think technically speaking, linguistically speaking, semantically speaking, you know, if you, if your neighbor kicks a beach ball on accident onto your onto your lawn, or if they walk across your lawn drunk from a party one night you could say they're trespassing which means they're using your property without permission but it's not really the same as aggression in the kind of raw original naked sense of like punching someone in the face Sure. because you're not doing it to their body but the analogy is there and the reason that we extend property rights in this way to externally, external resources is because of the logic of the self-ownership idea in the first place um
1: Somewhere in there becomes the, I, I feel, the, I don't know, maybe gray area or area or time to rationalize for maybe left wing people, uh, Republicans, and that it doesn't stay consistent if you start talking about uh, certain political issues. You know, at first they'd say, well, sure, I think you own yourself. And then it becomes harder sometimes. For, people, for non-libertarians to kind of translate that across many issues that come up politically.
0: Right, and th- I think that's partly because people don't think clearly about these matters. They, they use the word, uh, well, first of all, there's a linguistic matter. They use the word, like, your like, if, he, if, if people use possessives, people often confuse that with rights. So, for example, you know, I own my my body, myself, but most people would say you don't own your country I mean, you mean use the possessive right mm-hmm. but then, but then you get the things like you know the classic ju- justification like uh, the religious or the natural law or John Locke's justification for rights which is that uh, you know uh, God make, makes the world he gives the world quote in commons to everyone. And by the way Locke just was coming up with this just to rebut, you know, monarchical arguments that the the, the government is sovereign and they really own you like as a serf or a slave. Mm-hmm. He was trying he was trying to argue why now the government at most is there to serve us and we really own ourselves and because God gave us ourselves and so his argument goes like God gave you gave us the world, he gave us our own selves, our own bodies, so every person is his own owner. He owns his body. And, and then the step becomes more metaphorical and fuzzy, and he says something like, and therefore you own your labor. Mm-hmm. And and therefore, when you go to use these resources that were unowned out there in the world that God gave to us to use and exploit and wants us to use, and therefore no one can object to us doing that. So you have to be able to use these resources for us to survive as humans and as individuals. Um and if we, if we want civilized society instead of violent conflict, there has to be rules that, that are compatible with that. So therefore people need to be able to homestead an unused resource. And of course you do that by being the first one to use it. Right. But, and that's all correct, I believe, but, except for the God part. <laughs> uh-huh. but, he said, but he says that <laughs> we own our labor, and therefore when you mix it with something that was unowned then you establish like the best tie between yourself and that thing. So you see what his real argument was is that it's kind of a common sense or an obvious thing that you have – the person that first starts using a resource, he's taking it out of the commons. He's established the best tie with it. So the real question is who has – when there's a dispute over a resource, the real question is, okay who do we allocate the right the legal rights to to this thing is it is it person A or person B because they both want to use it
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the and, and, and the common law answer and the, the the traditional answer would be well whoever had it first because if you have it first you have a better claim temporally or chronologically than anyone else And and as Hans Hoppe, this is why he points out in chapters one and two of his theory of socialism and capitalism, Mm -hmm. he points out how important what he calls the prior-later distinction is. Like you have to have a distinction between who came earlier and who came later when you're making normative claims about who owns a resource because if you didn't, then there would be no property rights at all. In other words, it would be just a war of all against all because anyone who had a thing… Someone else can just come take it up from them later and say, I have a better claim to it, even though I came second or third or fifth. So you have to have a priority claim there. And so if you just work that backwards, sort of like Mises' regression theorem for money, you come back to whoever had the earlier claim has a better claim. But none of that argument requires this Lockean metaphorical idea that you own your labor. And when you think that you own your labor, which is the assumption he sort of injected into this argument… Then you get all sorts of confusion. You start thinking of labor as another thing that you have control and therefore ownership of. And that mistake leads to uh, an unending series of mistakes um, in political theory, including the labor theory.
1: Property. Yeah. OK. Well, r- explain then real quick, and I, I realize this does kind of hit, hit, head towards the labor theory of value. Why do you not own your labor?
0: Well, so ownership I think of the word ownership as a synonym for for property rights, right? So when you ask who's the proprietor or the owner of a given thing, uh, this is this is one reason I I sort of uh, object when people try to frame the IP and other debates by asking is this thing property? Okay. The question is not whether a given thing is property because property just think about the word property. It means proprietor. It means the person who has sort of a control over. Really what you're asking is when there's a thing that's in dispute, right? I mean if the thing is not in dispute, if my neighbor could just look at my house and copy it in his mind um, and blink like a genie and make a new copy, I, you know, I might be annoyed if I'm aware of it. It may be on Mars. Maybe I'm not even aware of it, but the point is it wouldn't be taking my thing. So uh, there wouldn't be as much strife about that. The reason that there's strife and clashing and conflict is because of the, the actual scarce nature of physical things. And when people take it, they, they they deprive you of the of the use of that thing. Right. This is why the question is never is this thing property. The question is when there is a dispute, who's the owner? But there can only be a dispute over things that are the type of things that can be that can be disputed. Mm-hmm. That is the type of things that if I'm using it, you can't use it anymore. And that's the only reason we would we would even debate about this, right? Um, and so, uh, sorry, remind me where we're going.
1: So uh, labor uh, maybe not being something you would own. Oh, so yeah. if someone took your labor, they're actually, yeah. t- like slavery, they're taking yeah. what you do own as yourself, not necessarily your labor.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's, it's sort of a semantic thing is, is how you define these words because mm-hmm. there's a lot of equivocation or duplicate use of terms, either unintentionally or intentionally. Um, but we just have to define these things carefully. To my mind, labor is just a word that describes a subclass of action. It's a type of action uh, You because know, there's leisure and labor. Sure. But labor is just a thing you do with one of the things you control. Gotcha. Or even own. Gotcha. And and so if you say that you own your body and your labor, what you're saying you're, you're kind of double counting. And you know redundancy is fine if you're just being careful. Like if you say in the Constitution, uh, you know we have natural rights in the Ninth Amendment, but we also have the right to free speech, even though it's probably covered in the Ninth Amendment. Yeah. We're going to say it twice. Mm-hmm. That's fine. But if you think of it as two different things that you have rights over and your are you're, do- you're double counting it's going to lead to confusion because you're going to start thinking of if you think you have a right to your labor uh, well i mean i think it actually that that what 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 i would call that is the pro- the labor theory of property which is sort of locke's idea right
1: okay uh,
0: but i think it sort of led to the labor theory of value which of course corrupted economics and led yeah. to marxism and and communism and … hundreds of millions of deaths and misery in the right. world. So these ideas are um, are important. Um, um, so labor, I would just say, is an action that you perform using the resource that you own. Um, if you say you own labor, then you – if it's something in addition to owning your body… Then you, you, it's going to lead to this idea that there's some kind of substance that you put into the product and you own that, and therefore your employer is exploiting you because they're not giving you the full value of it. So all these kind of other ideas. Right. Um, it's so it, I would say it's a necessary and and and, 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 uh, and not sufficient type of argument, um, and because it's not necessary, it leads to mistaken notions in other areas so it's a dangerous idea it's okay to use it metaphorically like if you say you know if someone enslaves you like, like give me an example someone enslaves you you can say they're stealing your time
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, just like when you sell your labor as an employee you could say you're selling your time mm-hmm. but these are just metaphors that are not logically correct you're not really selling time because you don't own time so these are just descriptions. What you're trying to do really is you're trying to say, if someone traps me in a cage and they hamper my right to use my body for some time, they're damaging me. right? So in yeah. other words, you're trying to describe the damages that flow from this rights violation. But the rights violation is the trespass against my body, sure. aggression. right? And then you know, the, the fact that I couldn't use my body for a given time is you could call that theft of time. And it may be the reason why I object to you using my body without my permission, but it's not the actual crime itself. The actual crime is the is the the force of the coercion used against my body, and that fully accounts for what's wrong with the action. And in fact, if you strip that part away, uh, then there's nothing left that you could really object to. So, uh, as another example, if someone, you know. Steals my chickens, then they've taken a scarce resource that I have a legal claim to and they harm me. There's damages that flow from that. Right. But if they if they build a restaurant competing with my restaurant and they steal some of my customers, I didn't really have a property right to my customers. So sure. we use the same language, but it leads to confusion. It leads to the idea to, to for the government to give me a, a right to block competition. Uh, You know, by the same token, if if some guy steals my girlfriend, it may it may make me feel like I'm more soft. Um, Gotcha. But I didn't really own my girlfriend just because the word steal or the word my could be used in both cases.
1: Right. Very well put. Uh, You mentioned Hans Hermann Hoppe a few times already. And uh, I know you are very well versed on what is known as argumentation ethics. Can you kind of touch upon what that is, where it came from, and kind of how it relates to property rights and what we've been talking about?
0: Yeah, I think most of us can talk on what you could call a consequentialist level, which is distinct from utilitarianism. So I would say that uh, consequentialism is sort of the idea that we should measure um, a proposed law or norm or policy by...  … … the consequences it produces. Mm-hmm. And as a general sense, I think that's true of all moral reasoning because what we would say is that most of us are in favor of peace and prosperity for ourselves and for everyone if we can achieve that. And therefore our knowledge of economics informs us as to what kinds of rules will achieve that. So basically I think libertarianism flows out of a very simple combination of economic literacy… Combined with goodwill, mm-hmm. so most people happen to. If, if we didn't have a certain amount of empathy for other people, and we didn't or weren't interested in others' welfare, we wouldn't. We, we wouldn't have made it out of the trees very far. I mean, we, so we have evolved as a species to value not only ourselves, but to be social creatures. And this fact that we value each other—that you know, means we share some basic values. So we we share peace and and prosperity and cooperation over violent conflict, and when you have those shared values and you're looking for some rule that can help achieve that, then if you have a little bit of economic literacy and experience, then the free market libertarian rules pop out as the only candidates that, that achieve that. Basically, live and let live. Don't, don't aggress against other people. It's okay to respond. If someone aggresses against you first, whoever gets a resource first gets it. He transfer it by contract, then that guy owns it. I mean, these are the, 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 the essence of all society. right? Um, and so, you know, over time, we, we have more time and leisure to have philosophers and people that think more deeply and they try to come up with arguments um, uh, for what the right rules ought to be and how we justify them and, and things like this. Um, Hans-Hermann Hoppe emerged as a, uh, a German thinker originally a socialist but then he became libertarian after being exposed to Mises and to Rothbard uh, but he, he, he detected sh- some defects in the standard argument that's given. So the standard argument that's given for free market principles or the, or the, the, the things we believe in would be either the consequentialist or utilitarian case which I mentioned or more of a natural rights thing which is kind of like Bach … or other types of arguments that are basically the nature of man determines what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. I'm Rand. You could classify in this camp, etc. And Hoppe just tried to come he tried to say, look, here's a different way to look at it. And he said, I will admit there are problems with the natural law approach. And the basic problem – well, there's two basic problems. One is that human nature is very, very uh, plastic and diffuse. Uh, Humans are not like animals, run by instinct only, and there are many different ways to live a life, many different cultures that have survived. So it's hard to come up with universal rules that are the way people should do things. You can't say what money there should be, you can't say what sexual practices there should be, you can't say what language there should be. Um, You can't say whether you should live a simple life or a cosmopolitan life, whatever. You can't say objectively, universally. So that's one problem with natural law thinking. And the other is the problem David Hume pointed out, which is the is-ought gap, which is, mm-hmm. which is a logical divide between uh, descriptive or is statements. That is statements about the, the facts of the world, the way things are, basically the causal laws of the world, and then a, a statement about the way they ought to be. Now, Ayn Rand tried to sort of jump over this by saying the way something is determines how it ought to act. But I would personally agree, and Hoppe agreed with the Humean idea that that's a logically unbridgeable gap that you can't conclude from the a statement of the way things are the way they ought to be. Um, but what he noticed is that 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 there is a sort of normative or moral presupposition behind anyone who engages in this inquiry in the first place, like all human beings that are interested in this issue of what the law should be, they're already talking about the way things should be. So they're already introducing on their own a should. Now, in their personal case, they probably are basing their own view of shoulds on their own personal preferences and values, which come because of their nature as humans that are social and empathetic animals. But the fact is that they just adopt certain values in a community of other people, not everyone, but let's say 90% of us, whatever. Um, and they're, they're taking for granted that there's a shared set of values among the community people that are engaging in these kind of discourses in general. And he was inspired in this by the, the so-called discourse ethics of one of his teachers, the sort of famous uh, socialistic uh, German philosopher of Habermas, mm-hmm. and also another guy that was prominent called uh, Appel. Now, they use this general idea of what they call discourse ethics, and the idea of discourse ethics is that that the very activity of arguing with other human beings about what the law should be has to have certain moral presuppositions because everyone in that argument is assuming we want to know what the law should be. There's a should there, and then you talk about what what those presuppositions are. We can debate that, but the point is there are some… Like we should be civil to each other. We should let each other finish speaking. We should talk to each other. We should, we should listen to each other's reasons instead of hitting each other with a rock. Mm-hmm. Because the purpose of an argument is to persuade someone by the force of reason, not by the force of a rock. Okay, so it's this sort of insight into the way that any norm in general, what a norm is, which is sort of a rule adopted among rational beings, what it has to be that is it has to be something that is adopted by people that have already accepted uh, certain certain what you could call grand norms as Hans Kelsen's phrase basic norms that underlie all this so once you get this earlier norm this lower level norm you can hook into it then you don't need to worry about the is all, or gap anymore you have an ought that's loaded on the chain an ought that is you can even say arbitrarily shared. I don't think it's arbitrary because of human nature, but there are odds that are necessarily shared by anyone engaging seriously in the endeavor of argumentation about what the what the laws, say, should be. So Hoppe said we don't have to worry about the natural law arguments, which have the is ought problem, and natural law is too diffuse. So he, he focused on… All norms have to number one be compatible with whatever norms are presupposed by people that engage in discourse, mm-hmm. and number two it has to be compatible with the fact that it's argumentation that's the key. So, so, so there was like another guy who's a famous philosopher, Alan Gewirth, uh, who's another kind of a left-liberal American philosopher who has who had an argument which was similar to to, uh, to Habermas's. Now, his student, Roger Pilon, who's a, a, a philosopher at Cato, um, did something similar to what Hans Hoppe did. And he he took his teacher Gaworth's argument, which basically argued in general that the structure of action leads to norms. And he said, OK, it does, but it doesn't lead to the welfare norms, sure. he believes. It leads to libertarian norms. Mm-hmm. But Hoppe criticized Worth, and by, and by extension Palan because he said it's not human action that is what he called universalizable. So in other words, universalizability is a property that any proposed norm has to satisfy. Like I can't with you say you and I have a dispute. We want to live together in peace and harmony or for some kind of goal. So my norm is that I get to own you because I'm me. Right. So that would be called a particularistic norm, which would be ruled out of court because it, it can't be accepted by everyone who's uh, potentially uh, uh, subject to the argument because it's not fair. And it's, it's nothing more than simply saying, I'm just going to use force and get what I can get. But we've already decided we don't want to just live in a world of all against all and a world of force against force. We've already decided we want to live… We want to come up with some kind of rules that we could accept as fair that's based upon reason, right? some kind of reason. You have to give a reason. So if you have to give a reason or a justification for a proposed rule, you're going to ultimately have to recognize that… All these rules have to be universalizable. They have to be universal in the sense of applying fairly to everyone who could be a participant in the debate. And what Hoppe points out is that that's just not true of human action. It's only true of argumentation, and I, I think he's correct about this. When, when people act in a world, they could all be criminals or they could all be solipsists, or narcissists or, or hermits or, or psychopaths. Um, it's only when they care about coming up with an argument to justify their actions that these rule these logical rules of, of argumentation, even consistency and, 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 and honesty they don't they just don't apply to action because you can have a successful action again if you're Crusoe alone on an island and you just don't have to be honest you just have to succeed in your action right but if you're going to try to justify an argument, you have to comply with certain, certain conditions, and these are the conditions that apply – and you could roughly call them universalizability. They apply to argumentation as a subcategory of action. So anyway, that was Hoppe's solution to this quandary, uh, getting out of the diffuseness of human nature which plagues natural rights theory and also overcoming the is odd gap by not stepping over it but by realizing that everyone entering into argument already has stepped over it because they've adopted certain values. And those are the people that engage in these types of arguments. Anyway, so this this fascinated me when I came across it. it this this argument Hoppe introduced in the in the in the mid eighties eighty five eighty six eighty seven um, when he when he came to the U S in eighty five to join Rothbard mm-hmm. and Rothbard himself was bowled over by the argument, even though it's sort of um, criticized his previous attempts at natural law thinking. Right? He said, "No, he Hoppe is really." come up with something that gives us a new avenue for understanding rights. And uh, it started being published and talked about, and I came across it when I was in law school and was fascinated by it and have been ever since. And, um, you know, I've written on it a bit, but Hans has, of course, defended it himself for these last 30 or so years.
1: Sure. I would, uh, I know we don't have a whole lot of time left, but... I did talk to some close friends uh, and told them about you coming on and they said, I've got to ask you about intellectual property, copyright patent law, and even some libertarians I know kind of had a hard time with your position on it. Um, So can you kind of give a quick overview of that and and where you're coming from on it?
0: Well... Yeah, and see, the reason I went into the other stuff is because I think that the IP stuff uh, either comes out of it or you have to figure that out first to solve the IP issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, Once you have this understanding of property rights that I've sort of uh, outlined previously, the IP issue becomes easy because uh, what you realize is that all laws are basically the enforcement of property rights and all, all human rights are property rights.  … Which means that every right, every law is is a recognized uh, ability to control a given scarce resource, and 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 that the libertarian solution is basically, I mean, I can say three, but there's like two rules. One is you own your body in the case of your your body, unless you unless you've committed a crime against someone else, mm-hmm. you forfeited your right to life. Um, for punishment or for retaliation or for defense um, and then for other resources there's just two rules one is who had it first and did you con- did you contractually transfer it to someone else so it's very simple so that's how you identify the owner of any given resource um, so as I said earlier if people say well or ideas property that's that's actually not the question because The question is, have you identified a scarce resource that there can be conflict over and that we need to determine who the owner is? And intellectual property laws – well, first of all, it's a grab bag of not exactly the same type of laws, which the advocates of these things have used the term intellectual property for confusion and for for, for propaganda Mm -hmm. Um, because – they were originally recognized as what they are, which is uh, grants of anti-competitive monopoly privilege and censorship by the state. Um, and with, they were, they came under attack in the 1800s by free market economists saying, what the hell are we doing uh, having the government grant out monopoly privileges to people? Um, uh Uh, the the, the response was, well, these are property or property rights, so that was why that term started being used. Um, If you recognize that all property rights are rights to control means of action, that is, scarce means of action, scarce resources in the world, and if you understand the role information plays in action, which is why earlier I said that the structure of human action, according to Mises, is that we have to do two things. We have to employ these means with our physical actions, and we have to be guided by knowledge. We have to possess information or knowledge about the world.
1: Mm-hmm. If you
0: understand, those are two care, uh, important ingredients to action, but they're, they're, they're distinct. Um, and if you understand what knowledge is, is knowledge is just a, a pattern of information possessed. It, it, knowledge, Knowledge is not a free-floating entity that floats around out there in the world and exists. This is sort of like the labor confusion. People uh-huh. think of labor as a substance that can be owned, but of course it can't because labor is just a, a process or a way of unfolding of things, or the way you use your body. Um, knowledge, similarly, information cannot exist on its own. It's not like uh, it's not like there's a the Bitcoin code is floating out there and in, in, in the Milky Way galaxy like like a like a comet cluster or something. Gotcha. Uh, all knowledge is simply an impatterning an of another thing. In other words, it's the way it's arranged or the way it's patterned. So, just like if you own a red car that's 17 years old, okay, that car is a thing that you own, and that if someone takes it, you don't have it anymore. So, it's a scarce resource. Gotcha. Uh, but the features of the car, the attributes of the car, the characteristics of the car, the way the car is shaped or it's in pattern are not something you own independently of the car. Mm-hmm. If, if it was, then you, then you would own the redness of your car. You would own the 17-year age of the car, and that would mean that you basically are owning a universal concept, which would mean now you own everything in the world that is colored red. Now you own everything in the world that is 17 years old. So the point is, you don't own the patterns or the or the or the attributes of the things you own. They are just descriptions of the things you own, but you only own the thing. And if you understand that information is always the patterning of a thing, because information has to be stored somewhere, it's the way something is arranged. Uh, in today's terms, you could think of a compact disc or a magnetic tape mm-hmm. or a, a static RAM. Any. Object you think of that is owned by IP now, like uh, an MP3 file for a song or the the movie file for a movie, mm-hmm. that is simply uh, a collection of data. But the data has to be stored on some underlying medium. So it's just the way that the medium itself is in pattern. But someone already owns that medium according to the property rules we talked about, either the person who First found that medium, or the person who got it by contract. So, again, and this is why I have trouble with the double counting idea of labor and property. Once you start double counting, then you have a problem. So, it is very similar to the, the fallacy people make with welfare rights. They'll say like, "Well, we're in favor of the kind of classical liberal rights to property and you know uh, your body and all this stuff," but. But we just want to add some rights to this mix. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we want to say you also own uh, the right to free speech, and you also own the right to a job. But what they don't understand is that these rights have to take away from other rights. Correct. Right? It's, it's very much like monetary inflation. Uh, people say, I don't understand why the government just, doesn't just print more money to make us richer. Well, it's because when the government prints more money, it dilutes the current value of the existing stock of money just like when the government recognizes positive rights, it has to take away from our negative rights. Correct. This is well known by libertarians. Yep. They don't understand that the same thing is happening with intellectual property. If you just add to the stock of property rights, because property rights always have to do with violent force and scarce resources, then whenever you add another property right, you're taking away from other rights, which is exactly what I mean, what it really boils down to is this. You know, In a free market, you have a right to your factory. I have a right to my factory. You have a right to your body. I have a right to my body. You have a right to your house, etc. If you start granting patent rights and copyrights, what you're really doing is you're giving a property right to someone else over how you use your existing property rights because they basically can go to court and get physical force used by government goons to stop you from using your resources that you previously owned 100%. Uh-huh. They can stop you from using it as you see fit. They can stop you from printing something on your paper. They can stop you from selling an iPhone or something that looks like your iPhone. So they actually get a control right over your resources, which they didn't have before and which you didn't grant them by contract. Okay, and, and in a law, we call that a negative servitude, Okay. Which which is legitimate if it's consensually agreed to. So for example... When you move into a neighborhood and there's a restrictive covenant or a neighborhood association, and everyone has agreed not to paint their houses orange, that, that effectively means you own 99 percent of your house, but your neighbors have a 1 percent interest in the sense that they have a veto right over how you can use your house. They sure. can tell you, I can't come into your house. I can't use it. I can't stop you from selling it, but I can prevent you from painting it orange. And that is totally legitimate because everyone consented to it. Right. But if the government were to grant my neighbors this right to prevent me from using my house as I see fit out of fiat, that's taking away some of my property rights. And we call that a negative servitude. And that's what IP law does. Patent and copyright law are negative servitudes that allow the holder of this copyright or this patent to use government force to stop you from using your your resources as you see fit, and normally they only have that right if you're using your resources to hurt them, that is trespass against their property or if you're in violation of a contract. But in the case of IP, there was no contract and there was no trespass against their property. That is essentially why patent and copyright laws are a violation of property rights. Um, now, you could also go into practically what the disastrous consequences have been, but that just takes imagination and, 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 and a little research because once you identify that a given government law is unjust and it violates property rights, you know that it's going to hurt people in different ways, Sure, just like the antitrust laws, just like taxation, just like welfare. Uh-huh. Um, the details are not that interesting, Like that's, that's all everyone wants to talk about, the details, like how is a drug company going to make profits if you don't let people – recoup their rd costs Mm -hmm. so they just go right into the details right away uh without looking at principles first
1: sure it's the my my roads argument kind of deal yes very well put uh i man this has been awesome can you talk about real quick where people can find your work and uh how to get in touch with you if need be
0: just go to stephankinsella.com um, s-t-e-p-h-a-n kinsella.com and uh, I've got links to almost all my works and tons of speeches and talks about this stuff and also a link to my my IP focused website yes C4, c4saf.org but um, yeah all my stuff's there
1: great thank you so much for doing this uh, Stefan, and um, I've loved it I've loved it I appreciate it
0: thanks glad to do it
1: all right I hope you guys enjoyed that and learned something from it. I will put his links in the show notes page below. And of course, my own links, which are www.facebook.com death to tyrants podcast. Go and give us a like over there. Follow me on Twitter at Buck @buckrebel, B-U-C-K-R-E-B-E-L. And go and rate us on iTunes on the podcast section give us a rating and a review if you will thank you guys so much for being here and i will see you next time
0: but i am the virus of the iris of Cyrus. Papyrus, I kill snipers and and strangle you with the of Ryders. Call me your highness And sip the blood from the phoenix Who's guilty like the Jews?